The Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin has announced that China's Foreign Minister Qin Gang will be visiting Ethiopia, Gabon, Angola, Benin, Egypt, the African Union headquarters, and the League of Arab State headquarters from January the 9th to the 16th. The foreign minister will have discussions with various leaders, including African Union Commission Chairperson Musa Faki Mahmat. The two leaders are expected to hold bilateral talks on various issues. This is the 33rd consecutive year that Africa is a destination for the Chinese foreign minister's first overseas trip of the year. Welcome back to The Crane. As you've heard, today we are going to be speaking about Chinese foreign minister, that is China's new foreign minister, Tingang's visit to Africa. Welcome to The Crane. And welcome to our very first episode of 2023. Tingang's visit marks the 33rd continual year in which the Chinese foreign minister, the sitting Chinese foreign minister, has visited Africa for his first trip of the new year. In 2023, Tingang is undertaken or has undertaken a five-nation tour of various African countries. This is monumental in terms of consistency. It shows China's value and strategic partnership with Africa. And today, we'd like to look a little bit into his trip, who uh, Tingang is, whom he visited, uh, what was discussed, and uh, reinforce some of the um, themes that uh, were discussed and some of the policy statements that were made, especially in regards to Africa. I'm Amadeus Musumali. Join me and my co-host, Mika Ershkok. In this edition. Hi everyone. Hi Mika, welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And soon to be happy Chinese Lunar New Year. Yes, that's happening soon, isn't it? This next weekend. And it will be inaugurating the Year of the Rabbit. Awesome. Happy Year of the Rabbit in advance to all our listeners. So last week was very exciting. So uh, China's new foreign minister, uh, Tingang, went on a five-nation Africa tour. Uh, this is tradition. China has done this consistently uh, for 33 years. And uh, this time around, he visited Ethiopia, Angola, Egypt, Gabon, and Benin. And to say that uh, this has been an interesting trip, uh, I think would be a little bit of an understatement. Uh, he made some very powerful statements, especially in Egypt and at the um, um, African Union headquarters in Ethiopia. And he also seemed to have caused an interesting reaction from the Western world, from the global north. Because uh, immediately uh, following his trip, uh, several European uh, foreign ministers rushed to Africa uh, to make their own statements. And uh, we've actually also got uh, a planned trip by uh, senior American cabinet ministers, I guess we'd call them, to Africa. So that's what we're going to have a bit of a look at. Just to sum it up, Chingan's visit at a macro level was really reinforcing uh, China's independent relations with Africa that have been built over decades, especially the last two decades in particular. Uh, they were follow-ups on the uh, FOCAC agreements. Um, so, Mika, 
Just um, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about what the FOCAC agreements were. Well, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, which has been happening since 2000, has seen Right now, I think it's 52 African countries are signed on in various uh, memorandums of understanding and participating in the uh, Forum on China-Africa Cooperation uh, conferences that happen every couple of years. The last one we had was in Dakar in 2021 in November, where basically now in the last year, we're slowly starting to see some of the details, which involve things like um, increased support of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of technological developments, digital platforms, scientific um, platforms. I know now we weren't able to necessarily have some of the educational cooperation and exchanges occur due to the pandemic. So these are some of the things that uh, Tingang spoke to the uh, various foreign governments that he was meeting with, particularly, for example, how can we pick up the fact that a lot of African students were unable to finish their degrees? And how? what are the other educational cooperation proposals that basically can happen in person now that we are having a more controlled uh, situation with the pandemic? During his visit, when he was in Ethiopia, which is also the home and headquarters of the African Union, which represents African nations on a continental level, uh, Chingang also made some very powerful statements, and two stand out to me. Number one, he condemned and declared as false the debt trap myth, which we have covered in depth on this podcast. If you're interested in the facts and the truth about the debt trap myth, please listen to our previous episode on that. Another thing that stood out to me was that Chingan declared a four-point proposal on the development of China-Africa relations. So these are four guiding points, guidelines, so to say, on how the China-Africa relationship will be developed and deepened going forward. And these four points were first to, identi um, to intensify in-person interactions and connectivity of ideas between China and Africa, Second, to further deepen friendly relations between China and the African Union, not just individual African countries, not just the continent at large, but the African Union in particular. Third, to do more to upgrade and elevate China-Africa cooperation. And fourth, to stand firm in defending the unity and cooperation of developing countries. And he made a very, very interesting statement on this point. He said, we should boost the representation and voices of developing countries, especially those of African countries, in the UN Security Council and other international organizations, and work together to make the global governance systems more just and equitable. This is the new Chinese foreign minister, Chingang making the statement. And this has repercussions, as we will see later in this podcast. Uh, he kind of kicked a little bit of a business there. Um, another interesting uh, diplomatic dimension of the visit and some interesting things he said, for example, is that um, Africa should, uh, should be a stage for international cooperation, not an arena for major countries' competition. He said this at a news conference with the AU Commission Chair, Musa Faki, um, this comes on the heels of the U.S.-Africa summit held by uh, U.S. President Biden in Washington uh, late last year. And 
there was a really interesting follow-up comment from uh, the Chinese foreign minister, and that is, um, if there is competition in Africa, let it be who does more for Africa's peaceful development and for Africa's greater representation and voice in the international governance agenda. I mean, it's not moving mountains, let's be clear, but it's an important re affirmation that China for the last couple of years, um, of course, with their own different interests at heart, um, but I still think acting in ways that are respectful and cooperative with African leaders, uh, would like to see Africa play more pivotal roles within the Security Council, which, you know, one of the asks for the last few years has been at least to have two permanent, yeah, has been permanent membership on the Security Council for at least two seats. And then, of course, um, since last year, we've heard more um, public support. And, you know, then the U.S. came in and also did the same. But again, a little bit too late since China and others have been um, sounding the the bell for a while is to have the African Union represented in the G20, um, which, you know, the G20 makes up, I think, is it uh, is it 80% of the global economy? I think it's around about that figure, but I have to double check that. I don't know if you know offhand. We'll put that in the show notes. Put that in the show notes. But a, a majority of the global economy, basically. So, I mean, this is interesting because, you know, uh, we have seen different phases of the kind of diplomatic posture of Chinese um Chinese diplomats and the Chinese diplomatic corps, where it's, you know, gone from uh, very, you know, seemingly standoffish, then a little bit more proactive in terms of uh, how, how many years ago was the wolf warriors became a thing. Um, but then I think that has been largely, <laughs> pretty recent. then that's been largely, of course, directed at the US and kind of Western critics. But in terms of Africa, it seems like we're in the stage of wanting to hear, wanting to listen, wanting to show that you are listening. How far that goes, we can't really say. But uh, I think this is an important, uh, these are an important couple of statements that he made that tell us a little bit about the direction of some of the priorities that we'll see this year. And I just thought it would be important to actually, since you mentioned the US-Africa Leader Summit that happened in December, uh, mid-December, end of last year, is I think we can play this clip of Tingang. This is him speaking in a side event just before the summit and he was being interviewed um, by one of these, you know, American political analysts. So let's roll the clip. We are not interested in the views of any other countries on China's role in Africa. And we believe that you know, Africa should be a place for international cooperation, not for you know, major powers competition for geopolitical gains. And we welcome all other members of international community, including the United States, to join us in the global efforts to help Africa. But I think that, I hope that uh, you know, the forthcoming Africa-US summit, you know, will come out with more concrete and workable measures.
So yeah, Matthias, you heard this is uh, Tingang when he was the ambassador speaking to U.S. media just before the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit that was held in Washington. And I think, you know, this is going to set a little bit about of the tone of the upcoming period of time and his kind of foreign, foreign ministry is that China's role with various regions of the world won't be defined by how the West sees it, but they want it to be defined by um, the various actors they're actually engaging. And so just going back to who is this guy? So Qinggang, he rose up, you know, through the ranks in the kind of diplomatic arena. He's been, um, you know, a spokesperson in the foreign ministry. He's had postings in the UK, in the British embassy, Um, so he's been mostly stationed in the Anglophone West because later uh, in the last two years, I think it was 17 months in total, he was the 11th ambassador to the United States from China. Um, but previous to that, he's been a trusted aide of President Xi Jinping, you know, performing some of these kind of protocol officer roles. And during his time as the ambassador, he, of course, had a very challenging uh, position to maneuver in in the last few years since we've seen this kind of rising new Cold War and U.S.-led aggression against China and against uh, various um, groups, including Russia, of course, prior to even the Ukraine war. Uh, so he didn't have an easy position, but he was very much clear on the fact that China's foreign policy should be about cooperation, about collaboration, and that it didn't make sense to have any kind of conflict at a moment in history when you know, we have so many challenges that we have to overcome. But so he also was recently elected to the Central Committee during the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party of China that uh, occurred last October. And he's basically taking over from Wang Yi. Oh, I'm going to miss Uncle Yi Wang. Aren't you going to miss him? I'm going to miss him. There's something about him that I just really love. He was very, a very interesting foreign minister. Very straightforward. <laughs> I will always remember the, the Alaska frank. moment, right? With Blinken. <laughs> I will always remember that. Yes. Oh, hashtag Alaska. Remembering. Um, um, oh, hashtag the cold. Ooh, Freezing it was cold. cold. It was breezy. <laughs> <laughs> so Yuang Yi, he is now, um, you know, he's elected to the Politburo and he's now going to be the director of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission, which is essentially the foreign affairs, you know, department of the Chinese Communist Party. But so seeing now first trip straight out the gate, as you said, the countries he focused on, I think it, it's really important and it is worthwhile looking at some of the dynamics. And of course, many different political commentators on the African continent and around the world who follow uh, Sino-African relations have been speculating or or indicating through fact-based analysis uh, why these specific countries. And the key one that I think a lot of people were talking about is Ethiopia, which you know is a large country in uh, northeastern Africa, population of 120 million, you know, is considered one of these Uh, ancient cultures because it wasn't uh, fully colonized the way most of the African continent was and, uh, you know, is kind of emerging out of U.S. sanctions, the recent civil war. We just saw a, a couple of weeks ago that a peace agreement and a negotiation was being brokered between Ethiopia and the TPLF leadership in the Tigray region. Um, and so I think it's for a couple of reasons It's important that, you know, Qin is coming at a time just on the heels of this 
uh, peace agreement, which shows, you know, support for the Ethiopian government, gives them a certain level of legitimacy. Uh, as you mentioned, they were breaking ground on the Center for Disease Control, which was uh, constructed and funded by Chinese financing and Chinese construction companies. Uh, you know, Ethiopia, Addis Ababa is the seat of the AU, um, where the main diplomatic buildings of the AU sitting there. So that also has certain symbolic resonance. And of course, um, it's important that Tin was encouraging Chinese companies to help Ethiopia in the process of reconstruction, like rebuilding after this quite devastating war that had people massively displayed, huge amounts of infrastructure being destroyed, um, mostly also in the inner parts of the of the country closer to the Tigrayan region. And already, uh, China in the last few years has really uh, increased their their participation and their cooperation and their commercial relations in Ethiopia, where I think there are around 400 Chinese companies and firms engaged, you know, from manufacturing to infrastructure to energy at the tune of a 4 billion or so, so between 2000 and 2020, 2019 or so. Ethiopia has, of course, also borrowed um, huge or significant um, amounts of lending, uh, around 13.7 billion from China since 2000, so during that time. And so they have been seeking to restructure some of their debt from foreign lenders, not at just China, but um, others in the kind of Western uh, multilateral lender bodies. And so Qing did announce a partial cancellation of Ethiopia's debt to China, but we don't necessarily have the details yet. So we're waiting for that. And I think it's important right now because... Again, Ethiopia's, uh, they got decreased support from the US. You know, they were excluded from the AGOA, which is the, remind me, I always forget, it is the, it's a trade agreement that basically allows for African imports to have certain tax exemptions and duty-free going to the US. The African Growth and Opportunity Act. That's the one. <laughs> uh, from 2000. Ash, it's been 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I really wonder what the results of that have been. But that was considered, even I guess on the face of things, it was considered a blow because it reduces the attractiveness of Ethiopia as a destination for FDI, for foreign direct investment. So that I think is some of the stuff that we've been seeing coming up online about the significance of visiting Ethiopia. And of course, uh, we've mentioned this before, but some of the very key symbolic recent infrastructural projects have been happening there in terms of, we've said, the CDC building, the AU parliamentary building. We've also, of course, had the Ethiopia-Djibouti railway line. We've also seen um, what's been happening in terms of water piping and various forms of infrastructure that support services that China has basically partnered with Ethiopia and seen immense growth. And of course, in the commercial sector, we've also seen, I think uh, it was a couple of years ago with Techno, they produced the first Amharic uh, keyboard, which is the local language in Ethiopia. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of symbology. There's a lot of material uh, significance to visiting Ethiopia first at this very moment. And then I think the other one, which maybe... Maybe Amadeus, you can jump into Gabon and Benin because they're like on the West African side. And we've seen a concentration of interest, of course, on the East side. But 
Gabon, Benin, these are quite small nations that I think most folks won't necessarily know where they are on a map. But a lot of people were wondering why these countries. Indeed, Mika. And this is really interesting. So Gabon, as you know, is a small country on the Atlantic seaboard of Central Africa, sandwiched between uh, Congo, Brazzaville and uh, Cameroon. It's got a population of 2 million people and um, is rich in oil, manganese and is also a big wood exporter. Gabon is still very, very dependent on the French who have a lot of economic and by extension, indirectly, political control in the country. Currently, Gabon, however, why Gabon matters is that currently Gabon is a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. So if there's anything happening in the UN Security Council, Gabon is going to, or Gabon is going to get uh, courted uh, by the uh, interested parties. Benin, on the other hand, is a country in West Africa. It has a population of 13 million people, and it is part of the neocolonial Central African uh, franc, the CFA franc system of uh, French uh, neocolonial exploitation, where uh, the countries that are part of the CFA franc basically don't control their own economies. Their national treasuries uh, are kept under lock and key in Paris. They can't uh, directly access their money. They have to ask the French government for permission. And when they do get their own money raised by taxes and government um, revenue in their own countries, well, (laughs) they get that money uh, from the French central bank at commercial interest rates. So uh, it is a shocking situation. Uh, It is very controversial. The French do not want uh, to discuss this publicly, and they don't want Africans to discuss this. During uh, Kin's visit, a memorandum of understanding on the partial debt cancellation um, for Benin of Chinese debt was signed by both countries. Uh, Again, we don't have an exact figure. The reporting on that is uh, still coming out. Uh, In both the case of Gabon and Benin, Promises have been made to expand the uh, Chinese Belt and Road Initiative in order uh, to extend and expand infrastructure, especially trade infrastructure, in these countries. Yeah, so I mean, that's Benin and Gabon, who are considered relatively minor players on the African continent, if you think of their size and the kind of um, limited influence it has. But as you said, Gabon right now is sitting on the UN Security Council, so we'll see what that could look like. But the other big major ones that he visited is Angola and Egypt. And they have two significant elements to them as Angola, you know, super mineral rich, um, very oil rich, you know, on the um, Atlantic seaboard of Southern Africa, 34 million people. Uh, He's visiting them on the 40th anniversary of their established diplomatic relations. But of course, the big controversy, which relates to, you know, what he said earlier about China not playing a role in the kind of debt trap uh, narrative, is that Angola is actually one of the biggest or holds one of the biggest debts to China, owes China one of the biggest sums of money, which is $42 billion, over $42 billion in over 200 different loans. And um, this has been a contentious issue in many years, but as you've said in different uh, contexts, and you should definitely go and listen back to our episodes on debt, and we will revisit debt in future episodes, is that though China has a significant amount of Angola's debt, we don't believe it's necessarily China's fault that 
Angola has lent in this kind of fashion. There are various things that come into play around why Angola is so indebted to China in specific, because I think more than 40% of debt owed to China is coming from Angola. I need to just double check that figure. But a large issue around it is not only that they basically have been, you know, a single commodity exporter in terms of their oil. Um, This has been largely a restriction inherited from colonial times. They also have issues around contexts of, you know, corrupt elites who haven't necessarily implemented the kind of uh, loans, financing of certain types of projects. They have a history of, uh, you know, big issues around corruption with the Dos Santos family who were in the presidency for many years. And actually with the new president or the the, in, the current sitting president who came in in 2017, uh, he actually try, has been trying to diversify the relationships um, with different foreign actors in order to deal with this issue. So that's one aspect. And then with Egypt, why, of course, it's also a, a place of interest, um, you know, over 100 million people are living there. Uh, they've always been ancient links between Egypt and the Middle East and Africa. And Egypt has also had close allyships with the U.S. in terms specifically of military cooperation. But in the last few years, I think since 2015, China was involved in the Suez Canal Economic Zone, which is an important um, new zone for the shipping, because remember the shipping that's coming from the Indian Ocean kind of sometimes goes over there, over through the Suez Canal, an important route. So they helped to bulk up that infrastructure. Also, a new administrative zone is being built about 55 kilometers east of Cairo, which is supposed to, supposedly supposed to help with the population density in Cairo that I think is home to 22 million people, which is, you know, almost over 20%, over a fifth of the total population. And it's supposed to house at least 6 million people, but these are largely going to likely be elite people, diplomats, um, middle class and upper class people. So there are, have been criticisms, which again, I don't think should fall to China, but on the Egyptian government that they're, one of the criticisms is that they're trying to isolate the administrative zone or the government from potential protesters. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of complexity around Egypt itself. I mean, they have around 60,000 political prisoners that, you know, anyone should condemn that kind of political repression. But of course, China has a different policy of non-intervention and um, non-interference in political issues. So it is one of these challenging things we often have to navigate as people who are interested in social justice to understand what the limits of these um, different relationships are. But uh, whilst he was in Egypt, which I think was the last day of his tour, he did make two important or one important intervention. And then I want to relate it is that one, he was very clear about condemning Israeli apartheid. Basically he didn't say up, he didn't say apartheid, but he basically called on Israel to end its incitement and provocation and refrain from unilateral action that could worsen the situation, which, you know, they haven't always been so vocal. China hasn't always been so vocal about the Palestinian question. And so that was significant. And two is that he did meet with members of the Arab League, which, you know, again, this is coming on the heels of the Sino-Arab summit that happened in December. The meeting with the kind of Gulf, what is it called? The GCC Gulf? Corporation Council. 
Council, yeah, the Gulf Cooperation Council, where he saw we saw that the Chinese government was calling for yuan to be used in the purchasing of oil and gas in the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. So being in Egypt kind of also gives that link to the Middle East and recent things that have been happening around that. And so I think that's part of why we would have seen Ting going to Egypt and concluding in Egypt. This trip as a whole, Amadeus, uh, you've been looking into some of the responses or how the West has been reacting to some of this, right? Totally, because there definitely has been a reaction. Just a few days after the Chinese foreign minister wrapped up his Africa tour, the German and the French foreign ministers, that is uh, Annalena uh, Barbock, Baerbock and uh, Catherine uh, Colonna, uh, went to the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa uh, and called for two permanent seats for Africa on the United Nations Security Council. This is why I said Qigang's um, uh, statement was very, very important. Um, now, they did, after calling or signaling their support for African seats on the permanent seats on the Security Council, the German uh, foreign minister, Annalena uh, uh, Baerbock made a veiled demand that Africa should somehow get involved in the West's confrontation with Russia over the Ukraine war, saying, and I quote, we need you and we need Africa in defending our European peace order. Yeah. As an African, no, no, no. when I start hearing Europeans demanding, <laughs> however politely, we defend them. to defend them, that uh, stinks. <laughs> Look at history, the world wars, uh, all the colonial wars we were forced to uh, fight in. It, it's something else. It's quite a demand to make. Um, and the U.S. also responded. Apparently, uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen will visit three African countries in the next coming two weeks. Uh, that's Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa. All of these countries uh, are either very pro-US aligned or friendly or strategically important. For example, South Africa is Africa's biggest economy. Uh, Senegal is uh, very pivotal in diplomacy, etc. Um, now, of course, uh, the US has been doing this pivot to Africa with uh, Biden's uh, African Heads of State Summit, etc. Um, we'll have to see what comes out of this. What is interesting is that Yellen's trip to Zambia, my home country, will coincide, completely coincidentally, uh, with a visit by the head of the IMF, the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina uh, uh, Georgieva, is coming to Zambia and will be here at the same time as the U.S. Secretary uh, um, uh, Treasury Secretary. Now, of course, the IMF claims that this is completely coincidental. We shall see. Coincidental. Very, very coincidental. Yeah. So, Mika, maybe to wrap this episode up, tell us a little bit about uh, the year ahead and the kind of geopolitical shifts that we uh, might be anticipating. Well, I mean, I think that we will definitely be monitoring closely some of the geopolitical outcomes from the last year. It's been a crazy last year. In your own Zambian country, we saw how the US basically stepped in the middle of Zambia and the DRC's lithium deal, where Zambia and the DRC had months before agreed to create lithium batteries through various cooperation of shared minerals and knowledge transfer. And during the summit, the US 
sprung in and basically wants a piece of the action. So, you know, again, undermining any kind of independent African development uh, project. And so I think we're going to see how is Africa going to, we've spoken about this in, you know, I work at the Tricontinental we talk about it defending our sovereignty. How are African leaders going to navigate defending and advancing African sovereignty, given the fact that we've seen how there is a kind of new Cold War dynamic and organization of the world? And this is on the anniversary, you know, it's 200 years since the Monroe Doctrine, which was basically 200 years ago, the U.S. Uh, tried to control Latin America, calling it its backyard. Um, and basically it was a form of them saying, we're trying to get the Europeans out of Latin America and we're trying to help you. But actually they were just trying to substitute uh, the former colonial powers from Europe and kind of have greater control over resources and human labor in Latin America. So we are seeing a possible shift towards this kind of relationship, a possible proxy, you know, geopolitical war happening in the African continent. And so, you know, this is all happening in light of the fact that uh, not only is Africa in between some of these East-West competitors or supposed rivals, but by 2050, one in four people in Africa I mean, one in four people will be from Africa. So we're going to see huge population growth in Africa, whilst, you know, parts of the world, China recently announced that they're seeing the first population decrease in um, decades. And, you know, at least a third of all the minerals required for us to, you know, get through a green transition and, and advance a different sort of development lies in African soil. So we're going to see how either how Africans are maneuvering around these different actors and aspirations. Those, you know, some are vying for control or re-control of Africa. Others might be genuine in their considerations of cooperation and, you know, development that could actually strengthen our region. And one interesting thing is that uh, the African Union chair is changing in February. It will go to the Comoros, the Union of Comoros. So President Azali Osmani will be the next chair of the African Union, it seems to be. Kenya was initially vying for the position, but it seems um, that it will go to Comoros. And, you know, Comoros itself has an interesting kind of geopolitical uh, internode or, or node of, 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 of various politics because it's a former French colony it actually continues to have sovereignty disputes with France over the islands of Mayotte and the Glorioso Islands, which France still claims. And, you know, France has been trying to do a kind of makeover of how they interact with the African continent in the last year. It also is in an important um, key shipment route, which is the Mozambique Channel. It lies between um, Mozambique and Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, a group of archipelago, three islands. And so it will also, I think, present interesting uh, opportunities with China, who, of course, is also trying to um, secure their geopolitical positions in the uh, Southeast Asian, um, Southeast Asian Ocean and of course, the Indian Ocean links to that. And they have had historically good relationships with the Comoros, where China claims it was the first uh, country to recognize Comoros' independence in 75. We've seen them, you know, rehabilitate airports, build different shipping ports and infrastructure, things like that. So that kind of is going to be, I think, some of the 
interesting interconnectedness. I'm just giving the case of Comoros, for example, and how that could play in China's favor, you know, in Africa's favor. But otherwise, Amadeus, I think we have a lot of very complicated questions to ask this year with very complicated, or maybe it's simple questions with complicated answers. Um, but hopefully, you know, the spirit of the rabbit, which is supposedly predicted to be, 2023 is predicted to be a year of hope. Hopefully the spirit of hope, the spirit of the rabbit, the year of the rabbit will bring us more peace and prosperity. And I, we really need hope right now because the world is at the point of economic, climate, social catastrophe. So that's what I'm looking forward to. But hopefully next week or next episode, we will get to talk a little bit more about some of the contemporary issues that are happening and get into some of the details. There is hope. There's always been hope. And I'm hopeful that there is hope for this year. You have been listening to The Crane, an Africa-China podcast. You can follow us at Dongsheng News on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And you can listen to and subscribe to The Crane wherever you get podcasts. If you like what we do, please share with your friends, family, and uh, network. It helps us grow, and we appreciate that. Thank you very much for listening in. See you next time.